After looking at the first category of seekers, the ulama of ilm al-kalam, the second category of seekers, the philosopher and the philosophers, and the third category, which I mentioned very briefly to you, the batiniyya, then he turns to the fourth category of seekers. So he says, when I finish with these sciences, now a few years has been spent on this, up to coming to this point, I next turn with set purpose to the method of tasawwuf. I knew that the way of the Sawuf includes both intellectual belief and practical activity. What does it mean that the way of the Sawuf can be understood both through knowledge, what is the knowledge of the Sawuf, what are the ulum of the Sawuf, but also through amal, what are the experiences a person feels when they practically practice the Sawuf. So there is an ilmi and amali component to this aspect of the Sawuf. So the latter, which means the practices that a person has to do, consists in getting rid of the obstacles and the nafs. Now here, self actually should be ego, if you like that word for English word for nafs, the obstacles of the nafs, and in stripping off its base characteristics and vicious morals. It means a vice. Doing, purifying the nafs, muhalafat al-nafs, mujahadat al-nafs, removing all of the bad attributes for the nafs. So that the kalb may attain to freedom from, uh, from what is ghairullah. To, that right now the kalb is in chains with ghairullah. To unfetter, to free up the kalb, to unfetter it from all ghairullah, a person has to discipline their nafs. That and, so that the kalb can have constant zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. To free the kalb from ghairullah and enable it to always do the zikr of Allah subhanahu ta'ala, a person has to get rid of the nafs. All the vices of the nafs. So Imam Ghazanatah is very honest. He says, well, he was a big alim and a scholar, fresh off of studying philosophy. So that looks like a very difficult path to try to engage in mujahadat al-nafs. So he said, the knowledge of the doctrines of the sawf was easier for me to first investigate than that actual a'mal of the sawf to do. <laughs> so I began to read their books, such as Qutul Qulub. Qut really means provision. Food is an riza. Qutul Qulub, the provision, sustenance of the spiritual hearts by Shaykh Abu Talib al-Makkari, one of the great Mm, early awliyaullah and the works of al-Harith al-Muhasibi which all and the various anecdotes of Imam Junaid Baghdad al-Shibrin Sheikh Abu Yazid al-Bastami ta'ala and other discourses of the other leading men so he started reading just like he spent two years if he read Ibn Asin al-Farabi he should also read this right so he started reading 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 I just comprehended I just comprehended, so page 27 in your packet, okay, I just comprehended their fundamental teachings on the intellectual side. means I got the knowledge, I read the knowledge of the ulama of the self, I understood what do they say, what do they do, how do they articulate, what is their tabir, what are their expressions. And as far as is possible by study and oral instruction, here is the slightest subtle hint that Imam Ghazanatan gives, that he also was instructed live, it's not just from books. Oral instruction means he must have gone to a live teacher who must have been a practitioner of the self and also taught him. In another one of his works, he mentioned the name of the person he associated with, or you can call who was a sheikh. His sheikh's name was Khaja Abu Ali Farmidinantale, who was a sheikh in our own line of Sasna. Sheikh Khaja Abu Ali Farmidinantale. 
So he got oral instruction as well. So as far as possible by study means reading the books. And as far as possible by oral instruction as much as one can get from Bayan and Majlis and Sohbah. But Abhidak Amal Koine. Right? So I got all the ilm from the books, all the knowledge I could get from Bayan and Sohbah. It became clear to me, however, that is what is most distinctive, the asal reality of Tasawwuf, cannot be apprehended, comprehended, cannot be acquired simply by studying the books. Or even, you can add your oral instruction, but only by zok. Zok means to have, it's find your immediate experience, tasting, to literally experience it yourself. Ecstasy here, again, we're going to call it hal, which means actually to have the feelings of Tasawwuf. So you won't really know what sabr is until you feel the feeling of sabr in an adverse, difficult circumstance. Then you know what sabr is. You can read books that describe and define what sabr is. Patience, endurance, fortitude, perseverance. You can meet people of the sabrin. But you'll only really 100% know what sabr is, is when you experience halat of sabr. When you actually have a hal of sabr, when you yourself feel the feeling of patience, that's what it means. It's not ecstasy per se. And by moral change means when your akhlaq, akhlaq of hamida, when your blameworthy attributes become good attributes. So when the arrogance leaves and the humility comes, that changing is then you'll know what humility is. Then you'll know what it means to be free of arrogance when you actually rid yourself of arrogance. This is what he's saying. So that's practical reality. And he's absolutely correct that the reality of the Sawaf can really only be understood by practice and implementation, not just by words and explanations. Then he says that what a difference so he gives. Now, I told you, Mahmoud, I love this to give examples, to explain by example, simile, tamthil. He says, so what a difference there is between knowing the definition of health and the causes of health and being healthy. So if a doctor defines that healthy, healthy means you're this and this and this, but the person who really knows is the one who feels healthy. Similarly gives the example, satiety means, there could be different types of satiety he's referring to, but one is that, okay, you, oh, you just ate lunch. So what is that feeling to have just eaten, just to have just eaten a meal? So I can explain it to you. Well, you will feel a bit content, and I could say so many words, but the words aren't really going to be nothing compared to when you actually look and you actually experience the reality for yourself. That's why in English people always say this, I have first-hand experience. What does that mean? They mean that they have yakin. They get certain knowledge. Right? What a difference would be being acquainted with the definition of drunkenness. Namely, that it designates a state arising from the domination of the seat of the intellect by vapors arising from the stomach and being drunk. He's not in any way advocating this. <laughs> what he's saying is that, you know, a person who doesn't know what it means to be drunk, let's say there's a pious mutiki Muslim doctor, he can scientifically understand intoxication, alcohol, this, that, he can give a whole, he may write a whole journal article on what happens if a person has addicted to liquor, but he doesn't really know what it, how, what a person who is drunk feels like, right? That is something that only can be said. And the reason he is using this, by the way, is this was a metaphor used in poetry and love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The people would write like that, that I'm intoxicated in the love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It wasn't that many, again, critics say that, oh, why are they doing tasbih with something which is wine, which is something prohibited. The actual tasbih wasn't with the wine. The tasbih was with the feeling of intoxication. And Allah subhanahu wa himself has said that in Jannah we will drink wine. But it's not this wine of this world. Right? 
So the notion is that there will be some elixir. So what they meant in that poetry that I have drank the elixir of the love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and I'm drowning and my entire being is submitting to the potent effects of that elixir. That's why they used to use this tashbih. So then Imam Zai is saying the same thing. That okay, I can read the books of the Sauf. They talk about Fana, they talk about Baka, they talk about Estezar, they talk about Kurb, they talk about Mraqubah Mayyad, they talk about all these things. Right? But what does it mean? You only really know what that means when you feel it and experience it. Alright. So the sober man, on the other hand, knows the definition of drunkenness and basis that he is not drunk in the very least. Again, the doctor, when he is himself ill, knows the definition and causes of health and remains distorting his lacking in health. Similarly, there is a difference between knowing the true nature and causes and conditions of the ascetic life and actually leading such a life and forsaking the world. Alright, knowing the true nature and causes and conditions. Here, ascetic means zuhud. Not that other group, muta'abbid, which he, so he should have used different English words for different Arabic words. Zuhud is a good thing. Zuhud, the Sayyidina Islam has recommended that in many hadith. Zuhud means not to love the world. To be in the world without loving it. To have the comforts of the world without being comfortable in them. That's Zuhud. Yes. The awliya Allah have the comforts of the world, but they're not, comfort, they're not comforted by them. The only source of comfort is their ta'luk with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Similarly, a person may have discomforts of the world, but they're not discomforted by it. The only discomfort they feel is if anything in their life is against the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that is called zuhud. So one can give them here a bayan on zuhud, but a person doesn't really know until they actually feel the feeling of zuhud. So then he says that I realized clearly that the people of the Soho for people who had real feelings, really experienced, hence they could write these things. They had actually experienced Fana, therefore they may have written a chapter on Fana in their book that I'm reading. So it was a real experience. They weren't just people of words. And that I, Imam Ghazali, had already progressed as far as was possible by way of learning and comprehension through learning. What remained for me was not to be attained by oral instruction, bayan, ta'lim, nor to be attained by study, mutala, reading, but only by myself getting that experience, how by walking the path and the journey that leads a person to Allah SWT. Now from all of the different fields of knowledge I had labored at, and the paths I had traveled in my investigation of revelation, because he had been a talib ilm, had studied ilm for many years, and rational sciences, that's already covered, his uh, study of philosophy, etc. There had come to me a yaqeen in Allah SWT, a yaqeen in wahi and nabuwa, and a yaqeen in akhirah. So these three aqaid were firmly rooted in my being. Again, not through any carefully argued proofs, but by reason of various causes, coincidences, experiences which are not capable of being stated in detail. Now here, what does it mean? It is that nur that Allah Ta'ala put into his heart. It's another experience that he had. He's going to show. He's going to share one of them with you. He's going to share one of them with you, and you can just imagine that similar such things happen. Because all this time, remember, he's still teaching. He's still a professor in the Nizami Madrasa in Baghdad. And after all of it, the only thing he says I know with certainty is Allah Subhanahu Wa Quran, Sayyidina Rasulullah, and Asr. But you don't know anything, right? So it had already become, at the top of year 28, it had already become clear to me that I had no hope of the bliss of, this, of the world to come, the Akhirah, save through a life of taqwa and t- taking myself out from all unlawful desires. It was clear to me too that the key to all of this, 
was to sever the attachment of my heart to worldly things by leaving the mansion of deception means this world. Leaving my heart's attraction and attachment to Dar al-Ghurur, the abode of deception, and rather returning the attachment of my heart to the abode of eternity. And to advance in my journey towards the Qurb of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with all earnestness, which means with mujahida and with effort. With mujahida and with effort. Okay. It was also clear that this would only be achieved by turning away from wealth and position and fleeing from all time-consuming entanglements. What does it mean? So you can imagine being the most senior professor at the Nizamiya Academy in Baghdad. So he was like in the Nizamul Mulk endowed professorship. You can imagine something like that. So he was very comfortable, wealthy, had a very mm, generous stipend to first position, and his position was his fame and repute and prestige in the Muslim land, and he had so many time-consuming engagements. So he realized, I'll have to leave all of that if I ever want to really deeply experience that zikr, that taqwa, that tawakkul, that qurb that I'm reading about and hearing from the awliya of tasawwuf. Next, I consider the circumstances of my life, as sometimes a person does today also and thinks that uh, they come to Bayan and they hear that, okay, I want this, but let me look at what I'm doing and I'm working. So once that goes through the same process, I consider the circumstances of mine and realize that I was caught in a veritable thicket of attachments. I'm mired down, stuck in so many duties. I also considered my activities, of which the best was my teaching and lecturing. Because he felt, okay, this is the best, I'm doing khidmat al-deen, I'm teaching ilm al-deen and realized that in them, in my teaching and lecturing, I was dealing with sciences that were unimportant and contributed nothing to the attainment of the Akhirah. What is Imam Muhammad? I mean, he's not saying that Quran, Tafsir, Hadith, Fiqh are useless, but he means that until you feel it, just teaching the words without the feelings is not going to be a benefit in the Akhirah. Just going deep into the meanings without feeling the feelings deeply is not a benefit in the Akhirah. So he realized that. After that, I examined my niya, my intention in my work of teaching, and realized it was not a pure desire for the reward that lies with Allah SWT. But the impulse that was moving me was the desire for position and recognition. I mean, look at the honesty. Who today, who even has Ujibin Riyah, who would write it down in a book and tell the world? That when I was the big alim in Baghdad, I had Ujub and Riyah. <laughs> Who would ever share this with someone? <laughs> Allah Akbar. So he says it openly. And I saw for certain, and he realized what that meant. That I was on the brink of a crumbling bank of sand. In falling into what imminent danger of falling into the fire of Jahannam. Unless I mended my ways. So he realized that means my ilm... My teaching, that's not going to save me. My ujub in riyah is going to destroy me. I have to get this amal and hal and hakikat of the sof. I reflected on this continuously for some time. While the choice still remained open to me, one day I would form the resolution to quit Baghdad and get rid of all of these things that are holding me back. And the next day I would abandon my resolution and decide to stay. Hmm? Allah Akbar. Exactly like, because people are people. We're the same way today, like back then. I put one foot forward, do the other one back. Hmm? If in the morning I had a genuine longing to seek Akhira, 
By the evening, an attack of a whole other host of desires had reduced my longing for Akhra, made it impotent, made it have no power. Ya Allah, Allah Akbar. Worldly desires were striving to keep me by their chains just where I was. That's what he's saying. <laughs> right? Akbar. While the voice of Iman, my inner Iman was calling, go, go to the road, to the path, just go on that path that will lead you to Allah Subhanahu What is left of life but a little bit, because he's now nearing 40 by this point. I gave you those dates in the beginning. Right? Probably around this four, near 40 by this point. And the journey before you was way long. We still have a long time to go. This is maybe one of the greatest alam at his time feeling this about himself. If every alam of deen today could get that feeling that I need to improve myself and go on the path close to Allah SWT, then those ulama would all become awliya and the ulama and awliya combined attribute will do tajdeed of deen again. Can do tajdeed of deen again. So all that keeps you busy, both in your ilmi activities and your amali activities, is just hypocrisy and delusion. If you do not prepare now for the akhirah, when will you prepare? If you do not sever now these attachments, when will you sever them? So on hearing that, then again my impulse would be stirred and the resolution would be made to take to flight, to run away from all these things and turn to Allah SWT. But then again, soon however Shaddan would return. Well, this is a passing mood, he would say. Do not yield to it, for it will quickly disappear. If you comply with it and leave this influential position, these comfortable and dignified circumstances where you are free from troubles and disturbances, the state of safety and security, where you are untouched by the contentions of your adversaries, then you will probably come to yourself again and will not find it easy to return. Beta or you tell yourself that, that I don't know if I can really do it, if I leave all of these things and seek Allah SWT, I'm thinking that today, but what if tomorrow I can't follow through on it? Imam Hussain, look at this. It's incredible. We can all feel so close to him. Hmm? You never thought, some of you never read this before, you never thought that you could ever feel so close to Imam Hussain, I'm telling you. Huh? Allah Ajeeb. Allah So for nearly six months, beginning in Rajab 488, July 1095, Ya Go pick up a book of history and think what was going on in this world 900 years ago. Hmm? I was continuously, six months, continuously tossed about between the attractions of worldly desires, impulse towards Akhra. Attraction to dunya, impulse towards Chaymin. Back and forth. That means he never gave up. Kitna Mujahidat, his life shows you. Don't ever get up. Lug it up. He could have given up in the first day. He could have listened to that Shaitanic Ustas at day one. He kept having the good impulse again. Again it came down. Again he tried. Again it came down. Six months daily. So if six months daily an alam can make this mujahidah. So for those of us who don't even have that ilm, don't be worried a few years you'll have to make this mujahidah. 
Maybe few years will go in the life of a Salik. That every day he wants to come close to Akhirah. Every day the dunya brings him back. That again he wants to come closer to Allah Ta'ala. That again the dunya back. That's the way it is. So then what happened? That in that month, then finally in that sixth month, in the end, the matter ceased to be one of choice and became one of compulsion. What happened? So this is the example of certain experiences so he's sharing one of them. What happens to him? This is the famous incident that some of you may have heard about. Allah Ta'ala caused my tongue to dry up so that I was unable to lecture. He was made unable, rendered incapable. Allah Ta'ala took him out of this. Said, okay, every day you go back and lecture and you enjoy your fame and prestige. Tell you to lecture up there. Then it's going to be one particular day I would make an effort to lecture in order to gratify the hearts to gratify the hearts of my students. But my tongue could not utter a single word, nor could I do anything at all. This impediment in my speech produced grief in my heart. And then at the same time my power to digest food and drink was impaired. I could hardly swallow or digest a single mouthful of food. My powers became so weakened that the doctors gave up all hope of successful treatment. Yes, that's what the Oliya have a term for this. He was in the sickness of lovesick. Yes. So my powers became so weak in the doctor, they said, this trouble arises from the heart, they said. And from there it is spread through your whole being. This sadness in your heart at not being able to get that curve, your guilt that every day you want to go, you don't go, has reached such a level that now you are just unable to do anything. So the only method of treating this is whatever anxiety is in your heart, you have to address and remove that anxiety. Thereupon, perceiving my impotence and having altogether lost my power of choice, I sought refuge with Allah SWT as one who is driven to Him. Because He is without further resources of His own. So then He says that Allah Ta'ala answered me because Allah Ta'ala is the being who answers Him who is driven to Him when He calls upon His Allah SWT. He made it easy for my heart to turn away from position, from wealth, from children and friends. Now this doesn't mean that he didn't like his children. Here some our students who said, Oh, you have to not like your children. No, Allah Ta'ala said in Quran that your Olad can be your Amwal and Olad, your wealth and your children are a fitna for you. Allah Ta'ala said in Quran. What does it mean children are a fitna? It means that sometimes a person is overly attached. Not talking about responsibility. So overly attached to children that they don't want to leave that attachment in order to get their attachment to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's Quran Azim Shah. So Imam Zayat said this. So, so we got another thing that it wasn't just position and wealth. Another thing that was keeping him was children. Another thing that was keeping him from taking this path was children. So I openly professed that I resolved to set up from Makkah Karma while privately I made arrangements to travel to Syria. I took this precaution in case the caliph and all my friends should oppose my resolve to make my residence in Syria. This stratagem for my departure from Baghdad I gracefully executed and had it in my mind never to return there. Let me explain. Imam Abu does go, so it's not, he has near to go for Hajj also, but it's not the time right now, right? 
So he says, I'll go to Sham first, then Philistine, Al-Khalil, then Makkah, Makkah, Medina, Manara. Why couldn't he say that? That's just a political aspect of history. Baghdad was one center of power. Dimashq was a rival center of power. And because the Nizamiya Academy Madrasa in Baghdad was under state patronage in Nizam al-Mulk, so they may think that this scholar is defecting from us and going to join some other political faction in Damascus, which is not his intention at all, clearly, right? So he didn't want to be misunderstood because it is extremely, and you're going to read that in a moment, it's extremely shocking for him. You can imagine somebody is the dean of Harvard and they just resign. So people would be stunned that you are at the height of the academic career, you have the greatest position, and you're leaving? There must be some reason. Oh, and you're going to Damascus. Oh, he must be going to foment political rebellion and start a new political movement from Damascus. So he knew that that's how people would think. So to save people from the sin of Suizan, so he said it like this, and I'm going to Makkah where and he does go, but he makes, but he's going to stop in Damascus on the way. There was much talk about me among all the ulama of Iraq, since none of them could imagine that somebody would withdraw from such a state of life that I had been given. And, and, that, and that anybody who withdrew from the state of life that I have would do so for a religious reason. So they thought I must be doing it for some dunya, political, some other reason. For they looked upon that, my position that I had, as the culmination of a religious career. That was the sum of their knowledge. This Imam Ghazali and some of his other works also takes a very tight position towards ulama. And in fact, Ihya Ulumuddin was really written for the ulama. And it's such a shame that the ulama today don't read it. <laughs> and they should teach it actually in the Madrasa. It should be Dakhla Nisa. When they keep editing the Nisa and adding all these other things. Right? So, much confusion now came into people's minds as they tried to account for my conduct. Those at a distance from Iraq supposed that it was due to some apprehension I had of action by the government. They assumed that, oh, there must be some political intrigue going on in Baghdad. Allah Allah. On the other hand, those who were close to the governing circles and witnessed how eagerly and insidiously they sought me and how I withdrew from them and showed no regard for what they said would say, this is a supernatural affair. Right? It must be some evil influence which has befallen the people of Islam and especially them. And they viewed it as a loss to the Ummah that such a great teacher is withdrawing from this post. So they thought it's some shar, some evil and tragedy that is coming. So I left Baghdad then. I distributed what wealth I had, I gave Sadaqa charity, and retaining only as much as would suffice myself and provide sustenance for my children. So it's fulfilling his responsibilities. All right? Now sometimes people ask this question at this point, and why did Imam Ghazayat have to leave? A person today leaves their home, their wife and children, and gets a job in Libya, Bahrain, Kuwait and Qatar, just to make a few more rupees that they make over here. Nobody asks them this question. If a person leaves to get few more deen, they ask this question. It's ridiculous. To get a lot more dunya, a person can say, okay, I'm getting triple salary, but I'll have to go live in Alaska and see my family once a year. He said, Joshua. Right? And if a person says, I'm going to get triple beam, and I won't, act, I won't be able to see my family in for some time, but I've arranged everything, as well as that person who's going to go to Alaska oil drill has arranged everything for his family, when he goes, they say, oh, yes, ye kaun se dine, jaapko praatha hai ki apne ghar wala bachche ko jhoore, ye kaun se jamaat me nikalna hai. Hmm? This is just, again, ilza, incorrect. 
But then he says that well, this I could easily manage, so he's also making clear that you should only do it if it's your ability. As the wealth of Iraq was available, alhamdulillah, there was a time in this ummah. Huh? Can you imagine that the madaras were in doubt? Hmm? Was available for good work, system constituted a wak for the benefit of the mu'mini. Nowhere in the world have I seen better financial arrangements to assist a scholar to provide for his children. That's no longer there in the Muslim world. I'll share something with you. But I'll just tell you in the West, these things exist, right? The type of scholarships they give you when they give you scholarship for your children, right? And <laughs> That thing isn't there. In due course, I entered the mosque. And there I remained for nearly two years. Now you shouldn't panic because he did the philosophy thing for two years. Right? So for two years, with no other occupation, Mujahidah is just a story of Mujahidah. With no other occupation than Khalwa, this is Khalwa, means that I should be alone and fully occupied in doing Ibadah to Allah SWT. Monasticism means to decide to live your entire life like that. That's not allowed in Islam. But to spend a couple of years doing that, that's allowed in Islam. If a person can spend years saying, I did nothing else but study day and night. I went for two years and I studied medicine day and night. So why can't a person do something for a few years doing the Ibadan on day and night? But they can't do it their whole life. And you're going to see, Imam is not going to do it his whole life. So for two years, what was he doing? All of those practices of the Sahaf, the Ibadah, Tilawa, Dhikr, Istighfar, Salawat, Salat al-Tahajjah, Salat al-Jash, Salat al-Duha, Salat al-Awabin, etc., etc., etc. And with, so this exercises, this means Ibadat, right, as I busy myself purifying my nafs, improving my akhlaq, and cleansing my kalb for the constant zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, as I had learned from the oral instruction and reading I had done of the Sabbath. I used to go into a retreat for a period in the Jamia, there's a masjid, and it's Jamia al-Masjid al-Umawi, which is in Damascus. and alhamdulillah we had the opportunity to go there. They wouldn't let me go up the minaret, but at least we got to stand and look with Taras at that minar, which Imam Azai used to climb up, going up the minaret of the masjid, for the whole day and shutting myself in. And he would go climb the minaret, small place, do zikr come down for namaz, go back up, come down for namaz, go back up. This is how he spent his day. Allahu Akbar. And he did this for almost two years. Then, next, I waved my way from the end. Sayyidina Sussam has said that Sayyidina Isa Islam is when he comes, the second coming, the Zul will be here in Damascus. The same place. Then next he went from, so there's some sacredness to this place of Damascus. Second, I made my way from Damascus to Beit al-Muqandas. There I used to enter into the precinct of the rock every day, and I used to make zikr over there. Next, then I went to fulfill the duty of Hajj, to gain the barakat of Makkah Makarimah Medina Manawa, to do ziyara of Sayyidina Rasulullah but first on the way I did ziyara of Sayyidina Ibrahim al-Khalil, which is today in a place called Hebron. So he went there also. And then I made the journey to Hijaz. Before long, however, various concerns, together with the entreaties of my children, drew me back to my home. And so I came to it again. So he goes back. Though at one time no one had seemed less likely than myself to return to it. So this is also Allah's guidance. 
This is, now that maybe we have to do a few next time we come to Karachi, but this is Al-Baqa'u Ba'd Al-Fana, that this is Allah Ta'ala guides a person in every stage. Allah Ta'ala didn't let Imam Ghazali get stuck here or get lost here or remain in this solitary worship. Allah Ta'ala took him out. Why? Because he had a lot of great work to take from him, such as Ihya'ul-Muddin, such as this Al-Muntil Min Al-Dalal and Minhaj Al-Abidin and other of his works. So, here too I sought retirement, means he didn't go back for teaching. I was longing for that khalwa and the purification of the heart for the zikr of Allah SWT. The events of the interval means in that time period that I spent on this journey, Dimashq and Makkah 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 etc. The anxieties about my family, the necessities of my livelihood altered the aspect of my purpose and impaired the quality of my khalwa. For now I experience pure hal means fana only occasionally. Although I never cease to hope for it, obstacles would hold me back, yet I always would manage to return to it. I continued at this stage for ten years. So two years, nothing but ibadat of Allah then ten years taking care of family needs, minimalist family duties, as much as he required, and then the rest of the time, ten years striving for those occasional moments of fana that I never stopped to hope for, and I always did manage to get them, ten years. Asimilat can never then, to get the curve of Allah SWT. Ten years. And during these periods of solitude, they were revealed to me things innumerable and unfathomable. What does this mean? So, okay, let me explain the rest of this. And now, this is now where we... Uh, maybe let me read the whole thing to you once, and then I'll explain certain terms that he's going to use here. This much I shall say about this much I shall say about that in order that others may be helped. I learnt with Yaqeen that it is above all the people of the Sawuf who walk on the path to Allah Subhanahu Their life is the best life, their method the soundest method, their character the purest character. Indeed, were all of the ilm of the ulama and the tafakku of the fuqaha and the scholarship of the scholars who were on the akal of the uqala, the hikmat of the hukama, who were versed in the profundities, the deep deep knowledge of revealed truth brought together to in, in the attempt to improve the life and the character of the people of the Sawaf, they would not be able to do so. Meaning they have maqam of Asan. They are in maqam of Asan, as Sayyidina Sussan mentioned in the Hadith. Muhsineen, as Allah mentioned in the Quran. Siddiqeen, Sadiqeen, as Allah mentioned in the Quran. They are already there. There would be no way to bring them above the level of Siddiqeen. This is a huge thing, because this is coming from Imam al-Zali, who has that ilm of the ulama, who has gone through the philosophy and hikmah of the philosophers. So for him to say this, this is a very big thing. For to the people of the Sawuf, all of the harakat and sakanat, all of the movements and rest, whether zahir or bath and external and internal, bring illumination from the light of the lamp or prophetic revelation. And behind the light of prophetic revelation, there is no other light on the face of the earth from which illumination may be received. I will explain this to you because it's not clear in the English. Let me just throw this unclear stuff out there, and then I'll explain this to you. Inshallah. In general... Then how is the mystic way Tariqa described? The purity which is the first condition of it is the purification of the heart completely from what is other than Allah SWT. The key to it which corresponds to the opening act in Salah is the sinking of the heart completely in the recollection of Zikr of Allah SWT and its Fana Fillah. At least this is its end relative to those first steps 
which almost come within the sphere of choice and personal responsibility, but in reality, in the real tariqa, fana is the first step, not the end, but comes before it being, as it were, the antechamber, the foyer, the betak, for those who are journeying inside it. With this first stage of the way, there begin the revelations and visions. The mystics, the Azatasawaf, in their waking state, behold angels and spirits of the prophets. They hear these speaking to them and are instructed by them. Later, a higher state is reached instead of beholding forms and figures. They come to stages in the way which is hard to describe in language. If a man attempts to express these, his words will contain what is clearly erroneous. In general, what they manage to achieve is nearness to Allah's fault. Some, however, would conceive of that as halul, incarnation, or ittihad, union, or wusul, connection. All that is wrong. In my book, The Noblest Name, I have explained the nature of the error here. If you sustain the state hal of the people to solve, need no more than say, of the things I do not remember what was, was. Think it good and do not ask an account of it. Alright. There's a lot of material to explain over here, so let me start at the beginning. First he said that, so he says they were revealed to me things innumerable and unfathomable. So there are few words I want you to understand in Arabic. One word is wahi, one word is ilham, one word is kashf, one word is ilka. Wahi, because the English doesn't make this clear at all. Wahi refers to that revelation that is sent by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to prophets and prophets alone. That is called wahi. He has used the English word revelation for ilham. Which again, whenever an English word has been mapped to an Arabic word, so the word revelation in English has been taken by the Arabic word wahi, you have to come up with another English word for ilham. Otherwise people will be totally confused. We have to say, Right? So it's not that at all. Wahi is only sent to Anbiya. There's another word which is ilham. That is that Allah's fountain does inspire non-Anbiya. I'll give you two examples. One from Quran, one from Hadith. First I'll give you an example from Hadith. Example from Hadith is Salatul Istikhara. Sayyidina Rasulullah taught, and everybody knows this, that there's two rakats nafil and then you make dua. What is in the dua of Istikhara? You're asking Allah Ta'ala, so the English word for ilham is inspiration. You're asking Allah Ta'ala to directly, personally inspire your heart about some matter or some decision that you're about to take. So that is an inspiration, that is a communication from Allah subhanahu to you that the Hadith is teaching us that you can, you should ask for. So Allah ta'ala communicates with Anbiya, Wahi is revelation, is the way Allah ta'ala communicates exclusively with Anbiya. Ilham is a more broad way, and Allah ta'ala communicates that way with Anbiya also, but with also Ghair Anbiya. Example from Quran. I'm not a hafiz, so I can't recite those verses to you right now, but the story of Sayyidina Musa al-Islam in Qur'an, in that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or even technically the word there is wahi, but it's being used as lohu mana, not istilahi mana. Allah ta'ala says that we sent inspiration on the mother of Musa al-Islam. She's not a prophet. Nobody's ever said she's a nabi. Allah ta'ala inspires her that you should put baby Musa al-Islam into the boat. It's in Qur'an. She's a ghair nabi. So the Qur'an al-Kareem establishes with kati irrefutable proof that a rare Nabi can get ilham from Allah And Allah tells him, don't worry, I will return him back one day to you. 
Right? Similar, you can take some instance and Quran mention about Sayyidatana, Maryam Radiallahu also Ghair Nabi. So that non-anbiya get inspirational communication from Allah subhanahu directly onto their heart is established from Quran. So who are those non-anbiya? Which of the non-anbiya are going to be the most likely to get such communication by inspiration? It's going to be the highest type of person after the anbiya. That in Quran is called Siddiqeen and Oliya. So it doesn't mean the awliya get ilham all the time or they get ilham about everything. Just like an ordinary mu'min doesn't get ilham in response to every istikhara dua that they make. But it means it does happen, right? Now if I was to ask you who is, more, who is going to be more likely to get some inspirational communication from Allah Ta'ala in response to the istikhara? You would say the one who has more taqwa, the one who has more sunnah, the one who has more ibadah, the one who doesn't sin, right? So you would also say that the more wilaya they have, the more qurb they have to Allah subhanahu ta'ala, the more likely Allah ta'ala is going to respond to their dua istikhara and give them that communication through inspiration, through ilham. So actually there are just these two things. This other word that is used in Arabic, kashf, ilqa, and firasa. Kashf is simply a word in Arabic which means that that which is undisclosed becomes disclosed. Right? And actually then I could say anybody who does istikhara is getting a kash because it was previously not disclosed to them which decision, which decision was khair for them. And if Allah Ta'ala, if they're pious enough that Allah Ta'ala gives them that ilham in response to the istikhara, so now it is more, it is apparent now to them. That's kash. What was not apparent becomes apparent. What is hidden becomes realized. That you can also call that kash. That's all the kash means in Arabic language. Kash doesn't mean that, oh, I'm going to be able to see behind the wall, or I can see right now what's happening in Bangkok. That's, you need cameras for that, right? That's not what Kash means. Kash is talking about an understanding of deen, a hadayah. To get a hadayah from Allah subhanahu wa about some understanding of deen that was previously not clear to you. You can ask for this by means of istikhara. You can ask in general. Alright? So there are two here from Quran and Hadith. I've shown you the existence of inspiration, communication from Allah Taala. So this is what he's talking about. That obviously no one can imagine. If I ask you which of the awliya are more likely to get it, you'd say the one who spent 12 years Two years entirely doing ibadah, and then ten years minimal dunya, and then otherwise is going to be a very good candidate to get this type of ilham and inspiration from Allah SWT. So that's what Imam Muzayyata is writing here. Okay. One of the things, though, which is the very first thing that he says that became apparent to him, is that the way of the sawaf is the best way. Now, I don't have to repeat that because I think that was quite self-explanatory up to the point where he said that it brings illumination from the light of the lamp of prophetic revelation. What does this mean? So there's this concept in our deen of nur and nubuat. What does that mean? That the prophetic teachings, the prophetic practice, the sunnah and hadith illuminate and cast a light on every aspect of life. So who is living that... So one is to walk in the shadow or shade. That's also a metaphor that I'm walking in the shade. This is a different metaphor that I'm walking in the light, the illuminated nur. So let's say Nabuat is a big flashlight and it's lighting up a path. The people who walk that path that is illuminated by the teachings of Sunnah and Hadith, that is what it means that they're walking the light that is illuminated by prophetic revelation.
So he's saying that he felt that the Ahl al-Tasawwuf were the most on Sunnah. And he explains this in more simple terms than other of his writings. Alright? That the people who were the closest to the kafiyat of the Sunnah, the Ahwal of the Sunnah, means who felt the closest approximation to the sabr that Sayyidina Rasulullah had that sabr, Allah. Who felt the closest feeling of love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the closest to the love for Allah ta'ala that Sayyidina Rasulullah said, Awliya. That's what he means. That's where he's using this metaphor. And I told you before, he likes to use these examples. That's just his writing style. Alright? And then he says that there is no other light on the face of this earth from which illumination will be received. In other words, there's the light of Sunnah and that path that is illuminated by that, and there is no other light on any other path. This is actually a beautiful articulation of the importance of Sunnah and Hadith. Then, a second reason, which is just going to come later, but let me do it now in the concept of Nabu'ah. The second tashbih he's doing is that what is the closest approximation to Nabu'ah? Because what Imam Uzzah is actually thinking is what that certainty comes through experience. Remember, up till now, the whole conclusion is that the true certainty will come through true experience. The truest certainty will come through the truest experience. The truest experience is given to those select human beings who are known as Anbiya. Obviously, when Allah Ta'ala sends wahi on a Nabi, he experiences that revelation. Right? For example, Haun salam, his brother Musa salam, was a Nabi. Uh, he may be hearing about it from his brother that I'm a Nabi and Allah Ta'ala sends revelation on me. But then afterwards, Sayyidina Muhammad makes dua to Allah Ta'ala. Allah Ta'ala make my brother Harun Nabi also. Allah Ta'ala says, okay, now Harun Nabi is going to experience that revelation. It's a different thing to know what Nabuwa is and to experience Nabuwa. But obviously nobody after Sayyidina can ever experience Nabuwa. Right? So that's finished because he's Khatam and Nabi wa Mursali. So what's the next highest experience? Nobody can experience what it means to be a prophet. So Imam Muzal feels the next highest experience is to experience Bilal. Highest experience to experience Nabuwa. Next highest experience is to experience Wilaya. What does that mean to experience Wilaya? means when a person is the wali of Allah Taala, they feel the qurb of Allah Taala. When they feel the qurb of Allah Taala, they will never be able to disbelieve in Allah Taala. I tell you from an ordinary young man, if one day when he makes sajda, he gets the kefiyat of qurb, he can never become an atheist again. He will never become an atheist. It's impossible. Because he's experienced the qurb of Allah SWT. Even if it lost it afterwards, he couldn't stay on it, but he'll always remember that feeling. And he'll remember the sweetness of that feeling. He'll remember the truth of that feeling. All of psychology and neuroscience tries to convince him that it was self-induced psychosomatic. No way can they can convince him. Because he has experienced with certainty the haqiqat of that qurb. So who experienced that the most was the anbiya. Second level is the awliya. And that's within Imam Ghazali's reach. Nobody can become a Nabi, but potentially everyone can become a Wali. Right? And I think we would all feel that somebody who did so much must have attained Wilaya by now at this point. So when he attained that Wilaya, he felt the experiences of Qurb. When he had that experience, that Zawq, he said, this is the Yaqeen. This is the highest level of Yaqeen. This is that path that will make a person experience that yakin that they know to be certain, but now they will feel it with certainty. Alright? Okay. 
Then he talks about, okay, tahara. So they have to purify their gullum from all that is ghairalad. That everybody can understand, right? Uh, when he said this, that these are the first groups that come within the sphere of choice. Again, the English is a bit difficult. What it means here is that there are certain things on, are coming close to Allah SWT that are kasbi, that are our own practice. And then there comes the next stage of Qurb, which is Wahab, which is the bestowal of Allah SWT. That's what Allah says in Quran, Ulaikahumul Muqarrabun. Muqarrab means not Muqarrib, those who drove and brought themselves close to Allah SWT. Muqarrab means those who were brought by Allah Taala close to Him. So that's the second stage that He's referring to. And in Hadith and Bukhari and Muslim Hadith Qudsi, Allah Taala says that that I keep coming closer to my servant as he comes closer to me. He comes to me a hand span, I come to him an arm's length. He comes walking to me, in atani yamshi harbala. I come running to him. So which curve is more, walking or running? Running. Which curve is more, hand span or arm's length? Arm's length. That's not the same. First stage of curve is what you can, how close you can bring yourself to Allah Taala. Second stage of curve is how close Allah Taala can bring you to him. And actually, maqam al-qurb is such a special thing that actually only Allah Ta'ala can bring you to that. You can aap thur se haat paon maar sakte hain. Maa aapko gold mein utha kar gold mein utha kar gold mein Baby cannot get up and climb into the lap of the mother. Right? So, this is what he means here by this first stage and second stage. Now, the last thing before we break for Asr Salah is this issue of visions. Alright? So he mentions here what? He mentioned two things here. Now this is going to perplex you. That in their waking state, they see angels and the arwah of the anbiya. And they see them, they hear them. Alright. Okay, this paragraph basically is the most difficult paragraph, I think, perhaps in the whole text for you to get. Alright. So before I do that, I just want to do the next one, which is clear. First of all, let's clear Imam Ghazali from people who have further stand. He clearly states he doesn't believe in this wasatu wujud, hulul, ittihad, wasul, any unity of being, incarnation of being. He makes that clear. Right? So he's completely clear of that. So, and he made that clear because that's not what the second stage is. When he said there's a second stage, but I can't explain it to you. The lesser person think, oh, he must be. Oh, Nick, pucker again. Huh? He's one of those wrong Sufis. No, no, he makes it clear he doesn't believe in that. So that leaves open still what is the second stage, what is the first stage. This doesn't mean this happens to everybody, right? This is Imam Uzzah's own personal story, right? So this is the story of one individual. And he spent so much time, and it's not just because of his zikr, it's also because of his ilm and his khidmat of ilm. Now, let's start with the first thing. Tell me something, who is the greatest prophet of them all? Sayyidina Rasulullah Who out of who is the greatest creation of them all? Sayyidina Rasulullah Who is greater, the angels or the prophets? Who is greater, Sayyidina Rasulullah or any angel? Okay. So if we can explain it for Sayyidina Rasulullah then prophets, anbiya, and angels, malaika, that's understood. Alright? Okay? Seeing angels and seeing prophets is secondary. Seeing Imam al-Anbiya, Nabi al-Malaika, he's also the prophet of the angels. He's the prophet of everyone. Is primary. 
So if we explain the primary one, the secondary ones will be understood. Yes? Okay. So let's take it two ways. First way to see Sayyidina Rasulullah in a dreaming state, sleeping state. Second to see Sayyidina Rasulullah in a waking state. First thing, seeing Sayyidina Rasulullah in sleep, in a dream. That is something that all of the ulama have ijma and ittifaq about, including Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn Taymiyyah, including Imam Rifa, Imam Shafi, Imam Malik, Imam Hanbal, all the ulama of Ahlul Sunnah al-Jama'ah have ijma on this, that a person can have a vision of Sayyidina Rasulullah when they're in a sleeping state. This is called Ziyaratun Nabi Sallallahu Alright? And everyone in the Ummah not only has this belief but has this desire and wish that I wish that I could also see Sayyidina Rasulullah in a dream. Yes? Okay. So if you can see Sayyidina Rasulullah in a dream, then the only actual step, this also shows you why you need to be taught these things. Otherwise, this one paragraph, if somebody else teaches you this, they'll just make you think that this is complete shirk and kufr and what. Whereas their own Akavar also believe in seeing visions of Sayyidina Rasulullah from injuring. So the only additional thing here then is if you can see Sayyidina Rasulullah in a dreamlike state, could you see his rue in a waking state? Is that possible? Is that possible? So it's so simple when I explain it to you, right? But you can never understand this from the English. I'm not trying to I don't know how to do this without... <laughs> but this will make you realize why you need a teacher. Whoever you choose to select as a teacher. When Imam Ghazali said waking state, he's not talking about waking state to me and you are awake walking around in the bazaar and at work. He meant in halat zikr. He didn't mean... He's not sleeping... So, for example, in our path of zikr, you could say during Mahakama. What type of zikr? When a person is in a state of fana. So, you tell me now, which is an ala state? For ordinary sleep and dreaming? Or a person is awake, but they're so absorbed in the zikr of Allah, like he said in the paragraph above, purified the heart from all Allah, purified the nafs entirely, has al adab and akhlaq, and is in halat of fana, which means the only thing they're remembering at that time is Allah subhanahu ta'ala, is that, but they're awake, they're not sleeping. Is that a higher state, or is dreaming a higher state? I think everybody would realize that being in a halat of dhikr, in halat of fana, is a more atma state than simply dreaming. So if you can have ziyarah of Sayyidina Rasulullah in the lower level, which is dreaming, can't you have the ziyarah of Sayyidina Rasulullah in the wakeful state of zikr? That's what he meant. He didn't mean while walking around, they're walking and seeing the Prophet and everywhere they go. Not like that. In their hal and kefiyat of zikr of Allah subhanahu wa Now you can see it's so easy to understand, but you would never, right? And somebody else could just put this translation up for you and say, look, he teaches you Ghazali, look what Ghazali said. And you'll say, oh my God, I'm not going to go to that workshop. Look what Ghazali said. Yeah, yeah. Because they haven't understood. They haven't tried to understand. They don't even have need to understand something. Alright? That's all he's saying. 
Now, if you can have that vision of Sayyidina Rasulullah some lower level of wilayah would be to have vision of some other anbiya, and the lower level of wilayah would be to have a malaika. That's it. When he talked about the second stage, so what is that second stage? Which he chose not to talk about, but made it clear at least that it's not hudul and ittihad and wusul. So actually, that second stage, I mean, obviously, if he chose not to talk about it, and it's not something that we can lay any claim to and have any authority to speak about, but I'll just share you a little bit that it actually is a stage where a person reaches such a level of fana fillah that there. Okay, this could be a good example for you. They reach such a level of fana fillah in their zikr that even if they were to get a vision of the greatest angel Jibreel they wouldn't even notice that vision because they're so lost in the zikr of Allah SWT. That's the second stage. Maybe from that you can get an idea. Allah Akbar Kabeerah. Hmm? Such a level of zikr. That's what Allah said in Quran وَتَبَتَّلْ إِلَيْهِ تَبْتِيلًا And make zikr of the name of your Rabb and lose yourself exclusively, absorb yourself exclusively in the zikr of your Rabb to the exclusion of everything else, even if it's the vision of Jabir Islam. What the fun of Allah. But I'm opening it up for you, Taki Uske in and sometimes, yes, you need to see the brilliance of the theory to be interested in practice. Or when a student who is in A-levels decides to do a B in physics, why? Because somewhere he must have seen some amazing nukta of physics, which is way beyond BA level, PhD level, postdoc level. He saw some Nobel Prize nukta of physics. Not on his own, but he learned something that attracted him to do A-level physics and BA physics. That's all that is going on here. And you can see Imam Ghazali, he doesn't even want to talk about it so much. He spent three, four lines on it and then he moves on. Alright? So Alhamdulillah, this is a good place to stop. And you reflect on these things, right? And inshallah we take the break for Asr now. And we have ten minutes to get to the masjid, so you should just go immediately. And we'll resume inshallah uh, 5.45 inshallah.